0: Welcome, guys, uh, to our first week of Lamentations, the series we're going to walk through the book of Lamentations. I've got a confession to make to you. When I told my kids I was going to preach a sermon out of Lamentations, they naturally asked me, what is Lamentations about? And they have a general idea because of some great Bible videos that they watch, but they're always happy to hear more. And what was my answer? My answer was this. Well, kids, Lamentations is the Hebrew equivalent of a sad country song. Um, You know, the ones that says, uh, my girl has left me, my truck broken down, uh, my dog ran away and I'm alone in this town. Um, Then I actually got around to reading the book of Lamentations in detail. And boy, was I ever wrong. This is not a book of... Baby, I'm so lonesome I could cry. Uh, this is a book of utter devastation. If you read it, it's it's an expression of some of the most deep felt pain, grief, loss, anguish, torment that you can ever imagine. And after losing a precious friend from our church in the last little while, uh, It kind of feels both appropriate and also inappropriate um, to talk about pain and suffering in this way. I want you to know that I don't hold myself out as an expert on pain and suffering. I feel a little unqualified to talk to you about suffering. Others I know have faced a far deeper lived experience uh, of suffering and they will have a greater appreciation of what we're going to talk about today. And yet God has placed me here uh, at this time, uh, in this place to tackle this passage. So I'm gonna take a deep breath and I'm gonna walk you through Lamentations, chapter one and chapter two. Let me first give you some historical context for the book of Lamentation. And I need to give a little a little ears warning, um, like they do on Light FM, that not everything in this book is pretty and I wouldn't be reading to your kids at bedtime. Um, But here's a little bit of Lamentation information for you to understand what it is that we're reading uh, in this book. First of all, a bit of background. Lamentations is written after the fall of Jerusalem to King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon. The king in Jerusalem at the time was Zedekiah. Zedekiah was a young king, He was also a very evil king, and he was to be their last king for quite a while. And this event, uh, the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians, is recorded at the end of 2 Kings and also at the end of 2 Chronicles, you know, those parallel historical records. And if you read about it in Chronicles, uh, it reads as if it was written by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Um, X number of soldiers fought, X number of people died, certain number of items and certain type of items were carried out of the temple, etc, etc. It's a very clinical read. Second Kings uh, gives you a bit more detail, and it's not pretty details. But this is not the first time that Jerusalem was under siege. This was not the first siege they had experienced. Um, this was uh, something that had happened before, but God had rescued them in the past. Not this time, not this time. This time Jerusalem fell. And the fall of Jerusalem was not just bad, it was awful, it was awful. It came with a level of horror and ugliness that is hard to appreciate from the text alone and it's certainly not conveyed by the ABS version in Chronicles. Let me give you, just take a few minutes to give you a small picture of what Jerusalem experienced when they fell to the Babylonians. And I'm going to just walk you through what happened in a typical siege of a city at this time. First of all, The attacking army would come and they would invest themselves in building a really big, serious camp, almost like a mini city. And in order to do this successfully, they first had to come in huge numbers and they would kill all of the inhabitants in the local area. There was nobody left in the fields and the farms outside of the city. Everyone was slaughtered so that they could build this camp outside of the city that they were gonna besiege. Next, they would build a whole series of little fortresses right around the city and they would have towers and they would have arches sitting in them so that if anyone tried to escape from the city, they would be shot with arrows. All of a sudden, as a result, there's no trade. No one is coming in and no one is coming out. feels like Craigieburn. Um, (laughs) There is no supply and if the attackers... Uh, could achieve it there would also be no water that would cut off the supply of fresh water They are starting to hurt Next thing they would do was quite intimidating. They would mound up huge mounds of earth Right up next to the city walls This allowed them to do two things it allowed them to literally stand on these enormous mounds of earth and look down into the city from on the top of these mounds it also allowed them to uh, mound up the dirt up to the weakest part of the wall, and they would attack the wall at that point with the aim of breaking it and and coming into the city. Now, you know one of the reasons why it was a great idea to have a moat around your castle. It's hard to mound up dirt when the dirt turns to mud. Um, next uh, came the waiting game. The horrors of the siege would come very gradually to a city, bread and water become scarce, starvation starts to bite, people start to think, you know what, I'd be better off dead because death would bring relief from all this. And in desperation, other humans would be viewed as a potential source of food, even their own children. Josephus writes, an outcome of a terrible siege uh, that the Romans imposed on a fortress called Masada and here's what happened at the end of that siege. In response to the siege 10 men were chosen by lot and it was their job to kill, mercifully kill the 950 others inside the fortress to put them out of their misery and then one of the 10 was chosen. His job was to take the life of his fellow nine soldiers and then having completed that task, to kill himself. That was the typical response to a siege. Desperate, desperate acts in order to bring relief. Ultimately, when the time was right and when the attackers thought that the city was sufficiently weakened, they would bring a battering ram and they would attack the wall at its weak points or they would try to burst open the gates And then once the wall or the gates had been breached, the attackers would flood into the city. One writer put it this way. He said, the horrors experienced by a city under siege is surpassed only by the barbarities perpetuated at its capture. And I won't go into that detail, but read Lamentations. You'll get the idea. The longest siege that I read of in this preparation was 13 years. Jerusalem fell after 18 months, a mere 18 months, uh, during which the shortage of food and water drove people to incredible acts of desperation. Ultimately, the city walls were broken, the Babylonian army came flooding in, the Israelite army, no doubt weakened from starvation, uh, they tried to flee on foot and they were mown down by the Babylonian pursuers. That is the setting for this book. And all, already I can feel that I've just brought the mood in your lounge room right down um, because this is not a pretty sight. The author of the book, uh, we don't know for sure. Jewish tradition is that Jer- Jeremiah uh, wrote the book. Uh, He's not named, but the detail of the writing suggests that uh, it was someone who witnessed the siege and who saw the invasion, and Jeremiah fits the bill in that respect. The style of Lamentations is really interesting. It's a collection, actually, of five poems, and they're not just any poem. Uh, They are each a funeral dirge. Now, what's a dirge, you might ask? I'm glad you asked. A dirge is not something familiar to us in Australia uh, or even in typical Western culture. Uh, It is a it is a funeral poem. It would be something that you would read out as a mourning, um, as a sign of grief and sorrow. It was a common thing in Jeremiah's day. Uh, And each poem, interestingly, except for chapter five, the very last one, each one is an acrostic. That means that each verse started with the next letter of the alphabet. Uh, so if I was writing an acrostic, the first verse would start with A, and then the next with B, and the next with C, and they do that. Uh, 22 verses, there was 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, uh, and you'll see 22 verses in chapters 1 and 2 and 4 and 5. The middle chapter, chapter 3, has 66 verses. It's got A-A-A, B-B-B, CCC. Each has three verses starting with the next letter of the alphabet. Uh, On a graph it kind of looks like this It's really ordered it's very very precise Um, it's it's got a whole lot of um, purpose and order and and deliberation in it Uh, And it's something which contrasts really interestingly against the chaos and the feelings and the mixed emotions that we find in lamentations So what are chapters one and two about? Well, interestingly, I went through an exercise where I was asking myself the same question. What are, these, what are these chapters about? Because when I read it, it just seemed like a whole mix of everything. And so here's what I did. I didn't know this would work, um, but it did happen to work this time. I started colour coding. Uh, I got my computer and I copied the text and then I colour coded four different things. I colour coded what led them to this point What have they just literally experienced? What have they experienced? Who is behind it? And what are they now feeling or how are they responding? What is is the feeling and response happening right now? And here's what I saw. Chapter one, a huge mess of color. Four different colors all interspersed throughout all the verses. The 22 verses was just a big, it would look like hundreds and thousands. It was a fairy bread picture. But then I saw in chapter two, very clear blocks, very clear blocks that said, hey, this is what is behind it. This is what we're experiencing. This is how I'm responding. And it became very ordered and a lot more, um, uh, yeah, just a, just a, a really deliberate way of laying it out. And again, it helps me to reflect that, Chapter 1 seems like just a blurting out of feelings and observations and hurt and sorrow um, and wanting to know that God sees what's going on here. It helps to reassure me actually that it's okay to pray that way. It's okay to talk to God that way. The Psalms of Lament are very similar to us uh, in that sense. We need not have a fully formed sentence or even a fully formed theology um, on everything that we're feeling before we come to God in prayer. Let me give you just a few examples of of what I'm talking about. So what led them to this point? Chapter 1 verse 5. If you've got the Bibles, follow along if you can. I'm going to move reasonably fast. But chapter 1 verse 5. Jerusalem is in grief because of her many sins. That's what led them to this point. Chapter 1 verse 8. Jerusalem has sinned greatly. Chapter 1 verse 18. Jerusalem rebelled against God's commands. Less obvious is, is chapter 1 verse 2. It says, among her many lovers, there is none to comfort her. This language of lovers actually describes a prostitute. It says, among all the people that she prostituted herself to, none have been able to turn around and do anything for her in return. None have been able to save or comfort her. And that language is, is one that says, hey, you tried to search everywhere else and now there is nothing You forsook the one person who could comfort or save. That's what led them to this point. What have they experienced? Again, here's what we see uh, in these chapters. Chapter 1 verse 2. Friends have become enemies. That's what they've experienced. Betrayal. There's betrayal. There's bitterness. There's anguish. There's loneliness. Uh, Physical strength is gone. Literally, they are weak. Uh, The splendour and honour that came with this city has disappeared and it's been replaced with hopelessness and starvation. Jerusalem is literally being mocked and humiliated. People are laughing at what seemed to be a great city and now it's been decimated. Chapter 2 verse 12, children are dying in the streets and they're asking their parents, where is food? Where is drink? What is going on? Their lives are ebbing away in their mother's arms. That is literally a description of what happened in the fall of Jerusalem. Now the next question, who is behind it? Man, I found this fascinating to go through and colour code the verses that talk about who is behind it. Amazingly enough, the author is in no doubt about who is behind it. He knows it was the Babylonians who came knocking and who eventually came through and slaughtered people in the city. But he also knows that there was a sovereign God who warned them that he would bring this about unless his people turned from their wickedness. And so we see, although we see reference to enemies as a player in these chapters, we see references, far many more references to the Lord as the one who has been the ultimate actor in this picture. Chapter 1, verse 5, The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins, Uh, Chapter 1 verse 17 the Lord has decreed for Jacob that his neighbors become his foes If that wasn't enough then big chap big slabs of chapter 2 Describe the way that God has acted towards his people in judgment on their sin Like an enemy it says in uh, chapter 2 verse 4 like an enemy He strung his bow and he has slain and poured out his wrath Those are harsh words attribute to God. So what are they feeling? How are they responding? Here's what Lamentation says. Chapter 1 verse 1, I feel like a queen who has just become a slave. Chapter 1 verse 12, I feel like I've been personally stalked and attacked by God himself. Chapter 1 verse 15, I feel like a grape that has been trampled in a wine press. You know, there's Ones where you you squish them with your bare feet. Chapter 1 verse 9, I feel so ashamed about what has been exposed in me. It's like being caught naked. And how do they respond? In chapter 1, it's mostly, just look, God, look. Look at what I'm experiencing. Look how distressed I am. Look at the way my enemies have triumphed. Look at my suffering. This picture is not right. There is no call for God to relent. It's too late. It's actually too late for that. But there is a call for God to listen and to notice. And listen to these verses from chapter 2. They just, they, they no longer say, look, they just grieve. They just grieve. The hearts of the people cry out to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let your tears flow like a river day and night. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to Him for the lives of your children. Look, O oh Lord, and listen. Look and consider whom have you ever treated like this? Understandably, for the people of Israel, this uh, fall of Jerusalem did not just bring physical death and devastation, it also brought at least the appearance that this had completely undone all of God's promises that he had made to his people. And let's think about the three big promises. Number one, the promised land. They had just lost the promised land. It now literally belonged to someone else. King Nebuchadnezzar had claimed it for himself. The promise that they would always have a king from the line of David. Well, their new king had just been captured. In fact, their king had not only been captured, he had his eyes taken out. The last thing their king saw was the slaughter of his own sons in front of his very eyes. They no longer had a king. They no longer had a promised land. And now the temple, the place where God promised that he would dwell with them, the temple has been burned down just after it was looted for its riches and its priests slaughtered in the temple. And knowing that God himself has done these things, the author attributes these things to God, knowing that God himself has done these things, I don't know about you, but this causes me a great deal of confusion or or this strange emotion. Why would God do this? Why would God bring them to this point? I can understand that they would say, well, hang on, this is not the outcome that God promised us. He fulfilled his promises and now he's undone his promises. What is happening here? This would understandably challenge their ability to trust him because they can't see how possibly this could be the right picture. In fact, that that verse from chapter 2, I can't recall the exact verse now, but it it says, Look, O Lord, and consider, whom have you ever treated like this? It basically says, I feel like we are being treated more harshly than any other nation you have ever judged. It's tough stuff. It's not that country western song that I thought it was. And it brings up some really big questions, uh, for me at least, but I think the biggest and possibly the hardest question is this. Does God do bad things? And when I say bad things, I mean, does God do things that hurt? More than just step back and, and passively watch or choose not to intervene in the consequences of our own actions, Could it be that God actively does something that would bring pain or cause hardship or grief or loss to the people that he says that he loves? And if he would actively do that, why? Why would he do that? I know I'm touching on a really raw nerve here and I want to acknowledge that. And yet I don't want to back away from what God says in his word. And so as daunting as that question is, I want us to embrace the question. And as we do, I want to encourage us to allow our view of God to be shaped by the truth of scripture, all of scripture. You know, let me tell you another confession. I have a tendency to read scripture selectively. And here's what happens. and, And I wonder whether you do this too, or at least whether you're tempted to. I read scripture in a way that, conforms to my own preconceived mental image of God. I prefer to regard my mental image, the God that I believe in or I've chosen to paint a picture of in my mind, as accurate. I prefer to regard my own personal view of God as accurate and and relatively complete. And so when I come across a passage of scripture that challenges my mental image of God, that doesn't fit exactly right with my mental image of God, I find myself saying things like this. I say, uh, yeah, I prefer to view it like this. Or I I use this line. Look, I've always taken the line that... And then I communicate my, my personal view, my preference Or I say, uh, I can't accept the the exact reading of the verse that you've described there because my understanding has always been, and again, I I reinforce my mental image to God, what I have a tendency to do is to keep my mental image of God the same, not moved, because I'm happy with it, and I reshape what the Bible says to to rest easy on my mind. But God calls me actually to do the exact opposite. God calls me to regard his word as fixed and true and pure and to allow my mind to be shaped by it. To listen to what God says about himself and to change my mind to conform to his perfect picture of himself. That's what I'm called to do. You don't get to know someone if you pretend that there's nothing more that you need to know. And so I want to challenge us as we go through this book of Lamentations together to allow our minds to be conformed and changed and bent by the truth of Scripture, not to bend and change Scripture to rest easy on our minds. That's not an easy thing, I know. I'm not asking easy. In a summary sermon on Lamentations, which I commend to you greatly, a pastor called Mark Dever says that as we face this question of does God do things that hurt, does God do these bad things, he says we're faced with two extremes and neither extreme at each end is particularly helpful and neither of them is accurate. At one end of the extreme, right up this end, is the position that God does not and would not and could not ever be responsible for something that causes pain. If there's pain, we've brought it on ourselves uh, or it's caused by other people. That's, that's one extreme view. Uh, true, things are often caused by other people or even ourselves. But if we allow ourselves to stop there, we effectively be, we become a practical atheist. We ignore the hand of God because we look for every other possible explanation. There's difficulty in accepting that God would actively have a role in our lives that results in pain, but be warned, friends, be warned about dismissing God from having that role because if you continually dismiss that role, you will end up with a distant deity who is very different to the true God of the Bible. God is not a distant deity. God is close. God is involved. He's active. Don't go to that end of the spectrum. It is not helpful and it is not accurate or true. At the other end of the spectrum, down this way, is a response that sees every every incident uh, that is uncomfortable or annoying uh, or disappointing uh, or painful as some kind of divine message. and and we find that we have to interpret this message. Uh, Oh, I stubbed my toe, and I missed my train, and it both happened on the same day. What is God trying to tell me? Um, This this obsessing about trying to divine uh, the message that's in our circumstances is also unhelpful and inaccurate. Mark Devers says, hey, don't stray down to that end of the spectrum. Instead, if you want to hear what God is saying, read your Bible. He has spoken. And keep reading your Bible and God will be as loud and as clear to you as he needs to be. And I would encourage you the same way. Keep reading your Bible. And so knowing that there's there's an end of the spectrum up this way that's unhelpful and there's one down this way that's also unhelpful, we must choose to allow ourselves to dwell in that middle space. That middle space where there is a bit less certainty. It's less comfortable for us to accept because we like things to be clear and have boundaries and lines. But in this middle space, things are less clear. There's still questions, but we know that neither of those two ends of the spectrum are true to the Bible or true to what God says of himself. And so we come down to now the crux of the question, does God do things that hurt? Does does God bring about pain The answer I would suggest to you from the book of Lamentations is clearly yes. And now we have a dilemma. We have a dilemma that challenges right down to our heart our view of God. It challenges the Christian's view of God. It challenges the seeker's willingness to believe or embrace a God who might bring pain. We have before us in the book of Lamentations a clear example of the God of the Bible bringing a terrible, terrible experience on his people. And it's natural and it's right to ask, why would he do that? If God was both all-powerful and all-loving, how could such a thing happen? How could he be responsible for such a thing? I need to remind you, I don't have all the answers. I don't pretend uh, to have tapped into the mind of God Uh, or be able to even fathom that but i do want to give you five observations and if you're a note taker this is a great time to whip out your pen and your notepad uh, because there's five things that i think are useful for us to observe in the first two chapters of lamentations and about suffering and god bringing pain in in a general sense I also want to encourage you to journey through lamentations together with us as we explore not just the first two chapters but then also chapters three and four and five um, because they will more fully unpack for us this idea of suffering so here's my five observations for you as we head towards the end number one not all suffering is a judgment that's that end of the spectrum but not all suffering is a judgment clearly in this instance The fall of Jerusalem came about because of the people's sin. It was an act of judgment. God forewarned through the prophets that the people uh, would suffer this and they didn't listen. They didn't turn away from their wickedness. God is slow to anger, but slow to anger is different to never to anger. It is hard for us to understand, but God is both... Sorry, that all of God's characteristics, his love, his mercy and his judgment and his wrath and his justice are all 100% true, 100% extreme and 100% perfect. But not all suffering is judgment. Think about the suffering of Job. Think about the suffering of the early church. That was not judgment for sin. In fact, quite the opposite. It was suffering on account of right. God allowed that suffering. Number two observation. All, all suffering is refining. In 1 Peter 1, uh, the Apostle Peter writes this to the churches who were suffering. They were suffering uh, and they were about to suffer more. And he says this You may have had to suffer griefs in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith. Of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Notice Peter doesn't say, Oh, these things have come because of your sin, or these things have come because our friends, the Romans, are just plain nasty. No, suffering is something that God uses then and now to grow your faith. Not to destroy your faith, but to grow your faith. And for one thing, for me, when I suffer, it helps me to expose idols. It exposes those things that I turn to for comfort that are not God. And so when I suffer, God is revealing my heart to me and is refining me. James chapter 1 says something very similar. Trials are a testing of your faith that generates perseverance, which helps us to become mature follows of Jesus all suffering is refining number three observation God uses painful experience as a means not the desired end painful experience God uses as a means not the desired end God had not finished with his people when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians that was not the end It was not the outcome that God wanted. And if it was, then it would have stopped there. The story would literally end there, but it doesn't. The Bible shows us that he continued to be faithful to his people. And we'll hear more about that as we look through uh, Lamentations, the hope that they had because they knew that God was true to his word. In one sense, suffering is a bit like a long, muddy patch on your four-wheel drive track. It is not your destination, but it is in your path. God sees what we don't see. God sees the other side of that patch. We don't always see it. And it is not the suffering that brings God delight, but it is what he does from it. Little Caleb Lewis, God bless him, he read a story to us a few weeks ago Uh, about Basil the branch who was attached to the vine. And Basil was pretty chuffed with his branch uh, until uh, the gardener comes and prunes. Uh, And it looks like Basil got his nose chopped off. Um, Basil gets pruned by the gardener and he's a bit upset. And then he sees that where he got pruned is where he's bearing fruit. And he sees what God saw. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. He sees what God saw in the other side of the suffering. A doctor treating a patient may cause great pain, but for an ultimately good purpose. That's probably better than the fall drive analogy. We trust ourselves to doctors, even though sometimes it causes us great pain. And we know that we can trust ourselves to God even more. My fourth observation is this. We may not know what the answer is, but we know what the answer is not. I'll say that again. We may not know what the answer is, but we know what the answer is not. In a really great talk, again, I commend it to you. Tim Keller um, does a talk, How Can God Allow Suffering? How can a good God allow suffering? He suggests that even though we don't know what the reason is behind our suffering, The purpose in it is is maybe unknown to us, but we know what God has revealed about himself through the gospel. And it helps us to know what the answer is not. And the answer cannot be, it can never be that God doesn't love you. It can never be the answer. Why? Because if that was the answer, then the gospel would not be true. The gospel is the ultimate demonstration of love. If God didn't love us, the gospel wouldn't be true. And that leads me to my final observation. Number five, the cross The cross brings us clarity on suffering. The cross brings us clarity on suffering. And here's why. Because in the cross, at the, in the events of Jesus' death, we have these things. We have God intentionally making someone suffer, someone that he loved, In fact, Jesus himself suffered more than we could ever imagine. It was horrific beyond the fall of Jerusalem, kind of horrific. And that suffering was not deserved. It was completely undeserved and yet completely in line with God's will. Isaiah 53, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. In the cross, we also know this that the suffering was a means and it was not the end. It was the path, but it was not the destination. What was the end goal that could possibly justify this kind of suffering? What was the joy that was set before Jesus that made him endure? What did God have that he could possibly cause his own son to suffer like that? What would he suffer for that he didn't already have? The answer is you and I. That was the goal. That was the prize. That was his treasure. The cross is the greatest example of suffering inflicted, not due to lack of love, but due to ultimate love. And you and I, this, this blows my mind, you and I are the objects of that love. Friend, if you're a follower of Jesus, I pray that you would not forget That you are still the object of that love. You are still the object of that love in your pain and your suffering. Don't forget, by all means, cry out to God. Cry out in your pain and your hurt. But let the truth of the gospel ring true in your ears that you are loved. if you're not a follower of Jesus, then you need, you need to know that Jesus suffered an incredibly painful death. He suffered rejection. He suffered God's wrath for one reason only, so that you wouldn't have to. He made a way for you to avoid the ultimate suffering. He made a way for you to avoid the ultimate suffering. Don't ignore that. Don't reject it. Don't insist on paying the price itself. The Bible tells us that a judgment day will come. It'll be worse than the fall of Jerusalem. It'll be more complete. It'll be more universal. And it will be final. God's wrath will one day be borne out completely against sin, One final time. And only those who have trusted in Jesus' payment on their behalf will escape that judgment. So I want to leave you with some questions as I finish. Here's three questions for you to think about. Number one Do you need to change your view of God? Do you need to change your view of God? Are you at risk of being a practical atheist and dismissing God from being behind anything that might be painful? Or are you going to the other extreme and blaming God for every mishap in your life or in your day? Do you need to reconsider your view of God? Question number two, do you need to reconsider your view of suffering? Can you pray that God will help you to see those times when he has refined you in the past? And will you trust your current pain to him in the same way? How would this change the way that you pray about your current circumstances? Will you allow the truth of scripture to reshape your mind and to help you change your view of suffering? And question number three, do you need to come to the cross? Do you need to come to the cross? Christian, do you need to be reminded of Jesus' love for you that led him to suffer in your place, in my place? Seeker, explorer, inquisitive person, visitor from our church, and I'm so glad you're here with us, would you trade your self-determined path, which will end in ultimate suffering, would you be willing to trade that and accept that Jesus has already suffered so that you don't have to? Will you come to him and give your life over to him today? Trade your ultimate destination of suffering for someone who walked through suffering to give you a different destination. I'm going to pray as we close. Lord God, you know, you know that we suffer. You lead us to it and you lead us through it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work for our ultimate good. We know that that is your plan. And we know that by looking at the cross, that suffering is not the end point, but that is something that you take us through. So, Lord, help us to trust you when we're suffering, when we're experiencing pain, when we're being pruned, when we're being refined. Help us not to see... uh, Judgment in everything, Lord, but to turn to you as the author of Lamentations does and call out and say, Lord, look, look at what I'm experiencing. Look at what I'm feeling. This is what I'm going through. This is what it's making me feel like. Help us, Lord, to trust you, even in those times of confusion when we don't know. Help us to trust that you do know and that you can and you will Work and that you do see the other side of our suffering, the place that you want to take us to. And we pray that in the name of Jesus, who suffered on our behalf, amen.